Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. In today's episode, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Alexis Cowan. And what's so amazing about her is not only is she a Princeton trained PhD specializing in the metabolic physiology of nutritional science and exercise interventions, she actually worked in Joshua Rabinowitz's lab. And for all the science nerds out there, Rabinowitz's lab is one of the best labs in the country. There's been some very incredible work done out of Joshua Rabinowitz's lab, and Alexis Cowan has been a key component in that process as she did her PhD in molecular biology. In today's episode, we really examine some of the evidence between the vegan style, vegetarian diets, what is important for gastrointestinal health, what does it mean, what are some of the microbiome markers and the microbiota that's really important for health. We just have a great conversation looking at both sides of the story, whether you are keto, carnivore, vegetarian, vegan, we are not here to discriminate. We are here just to discuss some of the science and some of the ways in which the science is put out there. And you can now take this information and implement it into your own life. I hope you enjoy this possible for you guys. And that is first form they have a great product that really goes in line with the topic today about gut health, and that is OptiGreens 50. This is a low-temperature processed ingredient. So this is low-temperature, meaning it preserves all its nutrients. A lot of the phytonutrients in these greens actually function as prebiotics. It is a blend of eight organic grasses and greens delivered in a two ounce shot of juiced greens. And they actually have travel packs, which are amazing. I always travel with them. Each serving provides over 1 billion CFUs, colony forming units from 10 different strains of good bacteria. Again, people with digestive issues often feel really great when they add in a prebiotic. You can find this on their website at First Form. That's 1-S-T-P-H-O-R-M.com backslash Dr. Lion. I'd like to take a moment and thank one of our sponsors at Element, and that is spelled L-M-N-T. This is an amazing electrolyte solution. Now, I have used them for uh, quite some time and in fact, it is one way that I increase my water consumption. Now they come in these really cute little packs, which are phenomenal for travel because sometimes it can be very cumbersome traveling with a big jug. I travel with them, I throw them in my backpack. Depending on what nutrition strategy I am using for the day, for example, if I have a really long flight, oftentimes I fast and I'll use half a pack in, in a large bottle of water and then after I land, I'll use the other half. It is great for hunger. It is great for electrolytes. I tend to get a lot of leg cramps. So this electrolyte solution, which has 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium is so helpful for me. And as my discussion today, whether you are keto, low-carb, vegan, paleo, you name it, 
you're probably not drinking enough water and hopefully you're training and you're probably a little bit dehydrated and you're, this is a great way to replenish your body. And right now, Element is offering my listeners a free sample pack with any purchase. That's eight single serving packs free with any Element order. This is a great way to try eight flavors. They have all eight flavors and you know, this is a little bit of a teaser, but they do have some seasonal flavors, which are my favorite. Um, chocolate mint, you might not be able to get that right now, but the grapefruit is amazing. And uh, of course, they do have a spicy habanero, which was also amazing. But anyway, uh, we could talk more about that later. You can share Element with your friends. You can get yours at drinkelement.com backslash Dr. Lion. That's D-R-I-N-K. LMNT.com backslash Dr. Lion. This is a risk-free try. If you don't like it, they will refund you. And again, I don't recommend anything that I don't love myself. I really think you guys will love this and get benefit from it. Okay, back to our show. Alexis Cowan, welcome. Hello. Hi, <laughs> PhD from Princeton. Yep. Molecular not, biology department. Oh, so uh, total underachiever. Not sure how you live with yourself, but uh, <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Yeah, uh, thank you. For people that don't know, Princeton is small one, school in New Jersey, and also <laughs> one of the best institutions. And you came out of Rabinowitz's lab, mm -hmm. which, again, for people who don't know, is somewhat iconic in the field of nutrition. Yep, absolutely, especially in um, something called metabolic tracing, where we essentially infuse labeled nutrients into mice and humans more recently to try to understand the fates of different metabolites in the body. Hmm. And what were you working on in particular? So when I joined the lab, um, I initially started on an exercise project that ended up kind of flopping, and <laughs> I had as been, as projects do, as do. especially the the things that you yep. don't necessarily anticipate happen, and yeah, and, yeah. I mean, and my part of part of graduate school is not really just only doing the research mm -hmm. and getting results, but also going through the process of understanding that failures are like teaching you how to properly conduct yourself in the lab and like how you can do better. So that's an important component of it, actually. But so after that project. I transitioned to a much more successful project, which was on ketogenic diet. And coming into the lab, I had already been interested in that diet mm. um, because I had experimented with it a bit myself. And wait, uh, and I'm gonna stop you there because yeah. who Alexis sitting in front of me now is different mm -hmm. than an Alexis in the past. Yeah, absolutely. And I would love to hear your story. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I, I know your story, but I would love for you to share it with people because you look fit and healthy, but you weren't always that way, were you? Mm -hmm. That's yep, definitely not the case. So I grew up um, having recurring strep throat in first grade, and I got pulled out of school, put on antibiotics for like several months. Mm -hmm. And my weight kind of exploded during that time. And, and how old were you? Uh, so it would have been like six, seven years old. Okay, young. Yeah, and now there's emerging research showing that like antibiotic use in young kids does lead to obesity. So, but at the time, you know, doctors were giving these out like candy. It was the '90s, so antibiotics were really just given out so freely. And now mm. we understand antibiotic resistance, and there's also drawbacks to them. So, right. um, but so yeah, my weight kind of spiraled out of control and. That continued for years, basically up through high school, where I maxed out probably around 270. I didn't weigh myself at my and, max. And how tall are you? 5'9". 
So you're tall, but yeah. 270 is... A lot. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot. Nine. And of course, like, I was very uncomfortable in my body. Like, I wasn't happy. Mm. Um, and so I essentially just committed to going to the gym every day and starting to count calories. Like, basically did it the classic way. Um, and ended up dropping 100 pounds in about a year. Which is incredible. Yeah, right. And I also, like, developed a newfound uh, passion for fitness. I had always kind of been into sports and stuff, but I was never so great because of my weight issues. Mm. Um, I played softball and tennis a lot growing up, horseback riding. Like, I did a lot of activities. But, um, you know, as I came into my new body, I could now do those things um, with even more prowess and, and enjoyment. So uh, from that period, I kind of transitioned into understanding how uh, nutrition could work for me mm. because counting calories isn't really enough to find And did health. you have to do it the whole... So you did it over a year. You mm-hmm. lost 100 pounds over that year. Yep. Did you continue to count calories that whole year or did you get a good sense? I was very strict the whole time. You were. Yeah. Um, to the point where it's like... It's disordered eating at some point. Okay. And certain people fall into that more than others. Mm. Um, But I actually developed bulimia after that, after I lost all the weight. So that was what really motivated me to try to understand how I could um, fix the mental aspect in Mm. my relationship with food so that I could enjoy myself because I've always been a big foodie and like love going out and having like the finest meals. (laughs) Which is interesting, the the concept of being a foodie and also having to do dietary restriction or Mm -hmm. struggling with your weight. Yep. It doesn't, and then also being very successful with weight loss doesn't always go hand in hand. Totally. Right? Yeah, there can be some um, like conflict there between those different aspects. And it's really been a process of marrying those. And the way that I've found work best for me is really prioritizing quality foods mm. and eating, you know, cutting out all the processed stuff, like eating whole foods, cooking it, like learning how to cook, um, enjoying cooking is really helpful because you can use all fresh ingredients. You know what's going into the food. Well, I don't actually cook, <laughs> as you know. I'm like, hey, Alexis, what are we doing for dinner? What are we <laughs> anyway, wow, what are we ordering? You air fry a mean steak. Exactly, <laughs> which is arguably not a great idea. Um, you know, you mentioned something in terms of going into Rabinowitz's lab mm-hmm. is you started on an exercise project but transitioned pretty quickly to a ketogenic project. Mm-hmm. And when you were counting calories, was ke- uh, the ketogenic diet on your radar? Were the different modalities as tools, for example, fasting or ketosis or a higher protein diet, were any of these in your scope of thinking about nutrition? That's a really good question because when I was doing this, I was 17 years old, so it would have been- Just last year. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I wish. Uh, Actually, 13 years ago. So um, at the time, keto wasn't really on the radar for the general population. Absolutely not. No. Mm -hmm. And uh, to a point though, like higher protein, lower carb was. So Atkins diet was popular during like, I think the late 90s, early 2000s and Mm -hmm. beyond. Um, So that was something that I had kept in mind, especially because my mom had also done that at some point during my childhood. So it was like on my radar. Um, But for me, I mostly didn't prioritize um, like one macronutrient over another, but I did mostly do, I would say low fat and like Mm. higher protein, high carb. Okay. Yeah. And I was like prioritizing resistance exercise and cardio, like a balance of both at the gym. And I ended up after actually um, that year of weight loss, I ended up getting into CrossFit and like Olympic style weightlifting, okay. which like completely changed my life, I would say, because it gave me way more confidence and then also just built like a lifetime 
of of uh, passion for resistance exercise, which I like still lives on to this day very strongly. I, I mean, there's rumor, uh, rumor has it that you've been over to my house multiple times and we may or may not bust out a few kettlebell swings or even the assault bike. Absolutely, some yeah. random <laughs> intervals during the day. That's the, the way to do it. Um, <laughs> Let's fast forward to a little bit about your work. Really, the goal of this episode is twofold. Number one, getting to know you, which you will be on multiple more episodes. I've been trying to convince her to be a co-host. And the other aspect of this is I want to go through really the current popular diets. And in my mind, they are the ketogenic diet which has multiple different expressions, a higher protein diet, which I think that we can define um, in the literature, that's anywhere from 20 to 30% of the diet, but you know we do see it higher um, in clinical practice and in real life. And then of course, the uh, vegetarian and vegan style diets, and maybe we don't group them together. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to really get into some specifics, have some defining conversations about what those are, how are they defined, and then ultimately, what are the metabolic implications of each of those nutrition strategies, and what do we know about them? And you have uh, pulled a few studies, which we're going to just highlight in terms of where we are in the scientific arena. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. That, that's where I'd love to start if you're down. Absolutely. Okay. Dive in. The ketogenic diet. And this is really where you've spent a lot of your time mm-hmm. in terms of research. People typically talk about the traditional ketogenic diet, which is a classically is a four to one ratio of fat to carbohydrates. It's 90 some percent fat. I know that there's some variability, whether it's 70 to 90, but typically it's 90% fat, 10%, 8 to 10% protein, and 2% carbohydrates, mm-hmm. somewhere along those, those ratios. But that's just one style of ketogenic diet. Yep. There are three others, four others. Yeah, there's multiple kinds. Mm. So the one that was traditionally used um, with children with refractory epilepsy. So this was starting in like the early 1900s. Yeah. Um, doctors found that if they put these kids on a ketogenic diet, they were able to stop them from having seizures, um, whereas no other medications or treatments at the time mm. could, were effective at doing so. Um, so that's where this really kind of started. Um, it didn't really enter the public sphere until more recently within the past, I would say, 10 maybe 15 years, mm. but mostly in like the past decade. Which is so interesting. So think yeah. about that. It started in what, the early, early 1900s. 1900s? Yeah. It's been around for that long and now it's making its emergence yes, and yeah. it's it's more visible over mm-hmm. the last 10 to 15 years. Yeah, it's really interesting. And actually I, would, I don't know specifically how that mm. transition happened. I would love to learn more about that. Um, but it definitely takes some time for things to kind of trickle into the public sphere from other areas. Um, All research, actually. Yeah, right? totally. I mean, we see there's data. It's, how, how long is the average that they say? I think it's at least seven years. Mm-hmm. Um, to like influence clinical practice? Oh, it, it's probably longer. Yeah. You're probably like 10, looking 10 years. to 15 yeah. years of, you know, uh, obviously I worked at, in Dr. Donald Lehman's lab and then Sam Klein's lab at WashU. And a lot of the data that is being done in the labs and is in the literature and in the academic world 
that does not get out to the public for quite some time. Mm-hmm. And there, there seems to be this huge gap between bench work, even human trials, to then uh, disseminate to right. the rest of the public. Uh, yeah. Which hopefully on this podcast we will help bridge that gap quicker mm-hmm. uh, because before the way in which that was done was through conferences or reading and now we have so much more in terms of social media and outlets. So hopefully uh, we'll be able to. Yeah, I think it was mostly a gap in scientific communication. Yeah. The scientists weren't really trying to bridge that um, like that information into the public sphere. Mm-hmm. But now with the advent of podcasts and social media, like you mentioned, these scientists are directly interacting with the lay population and people are able to kind of stay abreast of the newer newer findings and... Which is incredible. Yeah. And also challenging because yep. with really good information, we're also seeing a explosion of really poorly defined information or perhaps misguided information. Absolutely. And um, that, that becomes really challenging. Yeah, especially because people don't really um, necessarily understand... Uh, the difference between, you know, a successful scientific research study and what that means for them at a personal level, like mm-hmm. whether that will work if translated from the bench to like the bedside. So sure. part of that is understanding the different types of research that are going on. Like, is that relevant necessarily to human health? Um, and just like how that transition can happen effectively. Yeah. And so and we'll, we'll be able to run through a few of these studies, which I think are really important. And of course, we'll link them to the show notes. Uh, going back to the ketogenic diet, we talked about the classic ketogenic diet. What's next? Oh, yeah. So the classic ketogenic diet was, like you like you mentioned, 90, yep. about 90% fat, um, like 8% protein and maybe 2% carbs. And it was mostly dairy-based, actually, initially mm. um, for, like, the kids with, with epileptic disorders. So it was a lot of, like, milk, fat, butter, cream. Um, Milkshakes. Cheese. Milkshakes, <laughs> probably, yes. And, uh, you know, now when people are trying to in- integrate this into their... Um, life in a way that's sustainable, it's been broadened into a couple different categories. So one of them is the modified Atkins diet, and that's about 80% fat, and then like roughly 20, or a little like 18%, <coughs> like 18% protein. Hmm. Um, and so that's interesting. So yeah. it's 80% fat, mm-hmm. and so that leaves only what 2% or so. Yeah carbohydrates again this is a lower carbohydrate more modified fat diet yep so it's the higher protein Mm. version of the ketogenic diet okay and then there's also the uh medium chain triglyceride ketogenic diet which tell me about that yeah so essentially that could be technically it could be either the classical or the modified atkins diet um but you're essentially incorporating uh, medium chain triglycerides mcts yes into the diet as well because they're very ketogenic Essentially, because they are of a shorter chain length, mm-hmm. the fats are medium chain, so it's like between 8 and 12 carbons. When they go through the gut lining, they don't get packaged into chylomicrons like the other fats mm. that are in the diet, the longer chain ones. They pass straight into the portal circulation, which goes directly to the liver. And then when the liver encounters them, instead of using them to like create longer chain fats, they're below a certain threshold length. So they basically just get burned very quickly. So they're utilized, they're almost utilized like a carbohydrate in yep. some sense. Yeah. yeah. So they get uh, rapidly broken down mm-hmm. into ketones because basically the fate of, um, if fat oxidation is occurring quickly enough in the mm-hmm. liver, then ketones are the product of that. Right. And so you can take MCTs and boost your circulating ketone levels directly as a result, even if you're eating carbohydrates, but it can essentially help to make a ketogenic diet even more ketogenic. Yeah. You know, in uh, I did my fellowship in geriatrics 
And one of the supplements that we used a lot of was MCT oil. Mm. And there are packaged supplements of MCT oil in terms of being used for the older population. Interesting. Individuals with neurodegenerative disease. Mm -hmm. It's it's so cool. And these were not individuals, again, as a geriatrician. The idea is that typically they're already in some kind of calorie restricted state. Um, Older individuals, depending on their morbidities, are maybe not eating a whole bunch of food. Mm Mm-hmm. Therefore, by adding the MCTs, we did see some improvement in memory. That's really interesting. Yeah. Especially because there's like emerging evidence that ketogenic diet can be super helpful for people with Alzheimer's, other neurodegenerative diseases, MS, like things affecting the nervous system. Mm -hmm. So it could very well be mediated by the elevated ketone levels that are helping to improve learning and memory. Absolutely. um, Of course, compliance is is an issue, Mm -hmm. uh, especially in that population. Um, anything else? Any other types of ketogenic diets? Is there a, essentially a carnivore-style keto- ketogenic diet or that would fall into the uh, umbrella of an Atkins-style diet? Yeah, so I think uh, a carnivore-ish or a carnivore diet would fall more under the low-carbohydrate mm-hmm. uh, umbrella. It's not technically considered ketogenic because of the high protein content. You have mm-hmm. these glucogenic amino acids, so these are amino acids that can be created into glucose can be converted into glucose in the liver. And so when you take in a bolus of protein, if it's large enough, you'll essentially get a little boost in glucose levels that will trigger insulin, which will then suppress- But just a phase one insulin response. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) For for people that are uh, thinking that protein is it is bad for insulin levels over a long period of time. I would say we probably both agree that that's not true. No, it's actually, I would argue that it's good because Mm -hmm. you're not getting like huge glucose spikes. It's just like a gradual, like a a mild increase that's triggering like a low level of insulin to to clear it, but it's not creating these big swings in blood glucose. Absolutely. So essentially what you're saying is when an individual is eating a diet that's higher in protein, whether it's a carnivore style diet or just a higher protein diet, the body becomes good at generating its own glucose Mm -hmm. through the process of gluconeogenesis, which is what I would believe to be more effective than relying on the ingestion of carbohydrates, then you are constantly chasing this ebb and flow of blood sugar. Yeah, I mean, it it definitely depends on context too. Like if you're doing very intense exercise, Mm -hmm. you're probably gonna wanna make sure that your glycogen's topped off. And so that's gonna require a certain amount of carbohydrate intake. But for the lay person who's just like doing general activity levels and not performing at elite levels, it makes a lot of sense to get your glucose from eating protein right. and kind of keeping yourself from getting in the big energy swings of high carbohydrate meals. I, I totally agree with you. And, and to give the listener um, a concept of a number, and I've spoken about this before, but for every 100 grams of carbohydrates, an individual, or for every 100 grams of protein an individual ingests, they generate about 60 grams of glucose. Mm-hmm. And of course, that varies depending on the substrate and the rates of gluconeogenesis. But uh, that's a great baseline number, mm-hmm. and individuals do not require carbohydrates uh, unless you know you're looking for performance or perhaps there's some benefit there. And you know, I will tell you, just clinically, those individuals seem to do really well as it relates to insulin levels, body composition, and cravings. Mm-hmm. Which Absolutely, cravings is a bit more subjective, but. Um, So with the ketogenic diet, during your time in research, did you look at metabolic outcomes? I did, yeah. 
essentially exclusively looking at metabolic outcomes. I, th I did look at some anthropometric outcomes as well, like uh, body composition, mm -hmm. weight. Um, but essentially what I was looking at is how metabolism changes at the whole body level and also at the tissue specific level in response to mm -hmm. a ketogenic diet. So I was working in rodents and I would have the rodents on the diet for about eight weeks. Um, between four and eight weeks, it would it would vary, but essentially that could be equal to like somebody on the diet for maybe a year or more. Which is really important to point out that um, rodent studies are different than mm -hmm. humans. And uh, I think that there's a, a tendency to take what happens in rodent models to then say this is what is gonna happen in humans, mm. but it's different. It's totally different, yeah. yeah. Mice have about 10X higher metabolic rate than humans. Mm -hmm. That's you know why they, they die after a couple of years and then also they just metabolize things much more quickly. So whenever you're doing some certain mm -hmm. studies like looking at drug metabolism or any sort of, of um, any sort of study that is looking at the effects of an intervention in rodents, right. you need to consider the species differences and the metabolic rate differences when interpreting that data. Absolutely, and one other thing is their ratio of, of muscle mass mm -hmm. to body weight is, it's exponentially higher. Mm -hmm. And it's much different than, than a human. Yep. And another thing, typically uh, rodents are fed vegetarian style diets. That's what they eat. Um, yep, that's true. I mean, so they're technically omnivorous, uh, but it's easy to standardize a lab chow. Mm -hmm. And usually there's casein as the protein. So that's like a vegetarian style yep. diet with like fiber, plant fibers and um, like different wheat or corn mm -hmm. added, which, you know, isn't maybe too far off from like the Western <laughs> right. diet. <laughs> you know, and then we think about the amino acid profile. Yeah. Uh, so the amino acid needs for the rodent is different than the amino acid need for a human. Mm -hmm. uh, especially they have fur and, and there's all kinds of differences. I, I think it's important to point out because a lot of the literature in nutrition really starts in rodent models mm -hmm. or animal animals, and then it's transitioned over to humans. But creating a proof of concept in rodent models, there are benefits because it can be done quickly, but there are also caveats mm -hmm. in, in that, that's different. Um, so uh, yeah, I'd love to hear more about your research and what you found and some of those metabolic endpoints. So you were saying that you look at whole body uh, metabolomics mm -hmm. as well as tissue specific. Yep, so we can look at uh, whole body metabolism by basically putting mice into a metabolic chamber that can we can then measure things like um, oxygen uptake, carbohydrate uh, mm -hmm. production. We can look at uh, body heat production. We can look at movement, um, like how active the mice are. Um, and essentially, ketogenic diet was showed some interesting phenotypes. So we saw a reduction in fat mass um, pretty significantly mm. between the control group, which was on the high carbohydrate chow and the ketogenic diet chow. There was also a slight reduction in lean mass. wasn't really statistically significant. Though. In the ketogenic group. Yep. And it's worth mentioning that this, so the ketogenic chow that the mice were on was more similar to like the classical, uh, like 90 plus percent fat and 8% protein. So uh, it was a very, very diet. high fat ketogenic diet, which yep. probably most people, I, I don't think most people do that. No, uh, definitely not. Intensive of a ketogenic diet. Yeah, most people who are, trying this diet mm -hmm. off themselves are probably doing something closer to an Atkins diet or a modified right. Atkins diet. I, I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, it's really people who are looking into this clinically that may be into the the, the really strict classical mm -hmm. ketogenic diet range. And the percentage, when you say high carbohydrate diet, so the rodents were given a ketogenic 
style diet, a classic ketogenic diet, and then the and then also a high carbohydrate diet was protein constant between the two? It was not. Okay. So the control chow has 20% protein and uh, like five or seven percent fat it's pretty mm -hmm. low fat and the rest carbohydrate um so it's a, like a moderate protein diet okay yeah and so protein wasn't controlled we still having said that we only saw a mo like a very minor decrease in lean mass which is maybe surprising mm -hmm. um we also saw that uh basically these ketogenic diet mice showed a metabolic phenotype or like, like a metabolic um characteristics that were very similar to the mice that were just fasting in general. That's interesting. Yeah. So we, and I think there's some thought in the space that like ketogenic diets mimicking fasting. Mm -hmm. um, but metabolically, we, sh we showed this by essentially looking at about 13 different tissues in the body um, with metabolic tracer studies we did. And you know what tissue I care most about? Muscle. <laughs> yeah. Tell me, tell yeah. everybody. Right. What, what happened? Yeah. So the muscle in ketogenic diet mice burns more ketones than obviously than their their counterpart control mice so this instead of skeletal muscle burning fatty acid when which is what it typically mm -hmm. utilizes when a rodent was adapted to a classic ketogenic diet it used ketones mm -hmm. and fatty acids in the muscle was so, there i mean this is pretty nerdy but was there a percentage of one or the other yeah so i mean it's still predominantly fatty, fatty acids. acids yeah probably about uh 30 to 40 percent fatty okay. acids maybe about 10 to 20 percent ketones mm -hmm. the rest being a mix of lactate um and some amino acids i see and um for the listener fatty acid um skeletal muscle typically uses fatty acid mm -hmm. yep. and i i think that that's really important for people to understand with all the talk about weight metabolic endpoints that muscle its primary utilization is fatty acid yep muscle is very metabolically active and fatty acids are the most yeah abundant um energy source in the body mm -hmm. and they're also the only constant energy source so when you whether you're fasting or feeding fats are always going to be around right. um, in the fed state you're getting a lot of fats from chylomicrons from diet so right. those are being liberated and introduced to tissues whereas in the fasted state you're you're basically releasing fatty acids from adipose tissue instead. Mm -hmm. But regardless, there's always going to be fat present. So that's important, especially for muscles like the heart, um, which, of course, uh, re rely on a very steady source of energy yes. in order to function at such a high level yeah. all the time for our entire <laughs> lives. <laughs> Forever. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so you were saying that the uh, ketogenic diet, you were looking at tracer, uh, mm -hmm. you know, metabolic tracers, the ketogenic diet, skeletal muscle used both fatty acid and ketones. Mm -hmm. And what else? What else was somewhat interesting or novel that maybe you didn't expect? Was there anything? Mm -hmm, there was. So we actually saw that um, lactate and glucose were still burned largely by the brain, even after like six to eight weeks mm. of a ketogenic diet, which implies that the brain you know, still relies on carbohydrates largely to function. And mm -hmm. that there is some evidence in humans as well that this is the case. So it seems to be um, like from the Cahill studies in Harvard yeah. back in the 60s, uh, he pushed, I don't know how the IRB worked back then, <laughs> but like. So basically the IRB, for people that don't know, the IRB is a board that is required to gain approval. What does it stand for? The uh, Internal Review Board, I okay. think. Okay, that's it, simple. Uh, yeah. All right, well, 
the Internal Review Board is required to uh, kind of give its blessings mm. on studies. And human studies are very, I mean, there are so many hoops an individual would have to yeah to jump through yeah but somehow so there's the, ethics committees involved yeah. it has to meet safety standards totally yeah. but you know they got this study approved where they essentially fasted people for 45 days they no did. food whatsoever oh, I was like, that there's no way that that happened nowadays but you're saying then back yeah, then, yeah. Okay. 60s back in the day yeah um fasted them for 45 days everybody was like considered obese so plenty of fat to burn mm -hmm. um, and towards the end of the study they did really interesting work looking at um, how me metabolism changed in the liver and in the brain but they essentially were able to get people's glucose levels down to two millimolar which like for reference it's normally around five mm -hmm. um, in the average fasting person um, and typically two millimolar would be like you're having seizures and dying from hypoglycemia. But after having been keto adapted for so long from that long fasting period, the people were actually still conscious and mm. fine um, with the, the addition of the insulin to push down the glucose levels of two millimolar. So that implies that the brain can largely function with ketones after a significant adaptation period in humans. Mm. In rodents, it seems to be the case that Carbohydrates are still needed to a long, like a larger extent from our studies, um, but that ketones did take over as a major substrate in essentially all the organs of the body, um, which kind of mimicked the fasting state because we also did a control group that was just fasted okay. to compare to. Um, and essentially what you see is just kind of an augmented augmentation of the amount of ketones burnt by each tissue. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. And what did you see in the high carbohydrate group? So the high carbohydrate group burns um, during the fed state burns a lot of glucose in the muscle, uh, in the heart, basically the brain as well, but basically the insulin sensitive tissues. Mm -hmm. So any tissues that when insulin binds, it can upregulate glucose um, oxidation and burning. So the muscle serves as a major sink for right. glucose in the fed state. Yeah. Yeah. And how did you take that study and did you translate it over to humans? Where do you think that the interface from bench or from rodent models to humans actually comes to light? Mm -hmm. So the study we did was mostly exploratory to just kind of see what's happening mm -hmm. in response to the diet. Um, ultimately, you know, it seems like you're not really engaging any sort of abnormal metabolism or physiology in response to the diet, which does indicate some level of safety. Um, which is important. So, like, since I've left the lab and before, right before I left as well, we were transitioning into like a clinical trial mm. um, in cancer patients, specifically pancreatic cancer patients, um, to see if this diet could be um, advantageous in combination with classical chemotherapy to kind of shrink the tumor and improve clinical outcomes. Mm. And what do you, was there any results from this? Not yet. Okay. So, uh, COVID happened and then also. There was issues recruiting yes. because I think a lot of people are hesitant to start on a ketogenic diet, really maybe not knowing what it means or thinking it's too restrictive. Mm -hmm. Though I am hopeful that, um, you know, in certain contexts where this could be beneficial with like the emergence of new products onto the market, it's becoming increasingly more easy for people mm. to adhere to the diet without feeling like they're depriving themselves. In terms of metabolic effects in the ketogenic diet in general, perhaps not as aggressive as the classic ketogenic diet, have you seen uh, other metabolic effects, benefits? 
Of, of a low-carbohydrate diet in general? Yeah, or even the modified Atkins. I don't know if you use MCT oil mm-hmm. or um, with some of the clients that you work with, if, if you utilize that. Mm-hmm. Just curious if you've seen or looked at any of the other endpoints. Yeah, so I mean, there's definitely um, a role of metabolic flexibility in in this kind of discussion. So most people go through their life really never fasting. It's just kind of always grazing, mm. eating somewhat consistently, and usually snacking on carbohydrates, stuff like this. So they're never really engaging their fasting pathways like ketogenesis and, and ketone burning very frequently. And that can you know come at a cost over time where these pathways are not basically not active. And then when you do need to engage Because we were designed to go mm-hmm. through periods yeah. of feasting and, of course, going through periods of famine or yeah. at least non-consumption mm-hmm. of food yeah absolutely yeah we never we didn't evolve in an environment where there was this abundance of of nutrition and and also to say uh we didn't also involve or evolve into an environment where movement was optional mm-hmm. movement absolutely. is also incredibly optional especially when we think about muscle mm-hmm. as this metabolic sink mm-hmm. uh really when you are training and when you are moving is when muscle can really be effective. Absolutely. Um, yeah. For the disposal of glucose. Yeah, muscle contraction is absolutely critical to make sure that the, the metabolites in muscle like fat and glucose are yeah. turning over quickly enough. Otherwise, fat, fat can be stored in muscle, glucose is stored in muscle, obviously. Right. So if these pools become stagnant, the muscle's not going to take anything up. It's like a sponge that's full. Right. You need to like wring the sponge out and then it can take up more. And what you're saying is actually very important. This idea that we are overfilling skeletal muscle is a big deal. Mm -hmm. And for people to conceptualize this, it's almost as if it's a marbled steak. Yes. There, (laughs) which (laughs) is kind of gross to think about, but in fact does happen and is true. Not only does the muscle become ineffective in many domains of metabolism, it also becomes weaker. Mm-hmm. Contractile force is less. It is infiltrated with fat and the quality of the muscle tissue diminishes. Mm-hmm. You put that in combination with an aging individual, you're in trouble. Totally, and it's also yeah. influencing the inflammatory state of not only the muscle itself, but the whole body by right. influencing immune cell polarization like macrophages and right. also the production of certain cytokines. So you're just really fostering an inflammatory state that is basically begetting more damage to the muscle, more insulin resistance, less metabolic flexibility, more aging, like accelerated aging process. Yeah. And that can really all start at the muscle. Uh, I totally agree with you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In terms of translating some of this stuff to the public and to the listener, what would be some of your recommendations for a ketogenic diet in terms of starting, how to do it, mm-hmm. even why they should do it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think a ketogenic diet could be great for people who are maybe trying to incorporate some sort of fasting into their life. Um, but aren't able to, to fast. Yeah, maybe. just to kind of ease into it, you can mimic fasting. Like I talked about before, I sh- our studies showed that the ketogenic diet highly mimicked the fasted state. So instead of fasting, you could incorporate like a high fat meal in the morning to kind of keep the fasting pathways going from your sleeping period overnight where you're already starting to deplete glycogen and burning more fat. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of keep those pathways active in the morning, for example, 
um, by eating a ketogenic meal first thing and then maybe pushing carbohydrates towards later in the day. Um, and that doesn't have to be something you do every day, but it's just nice to be able to um, consciously engage these pathways at least a couple times a week to make sure that you're able to be flexible enough because, you know, humans, we're like the most adaptable creature on the planet. We can live anywhere and and we can survive in so many different conditions. And part of that is because, you know, we can go without nutrition or we, we can eat basically anything and survive. Yeah. Um, so just being able to be in that very adaptable state is ideal and you can kind of start to get there by incorporating a ketogenic diet and then ultimately add some fasting in and it should be much easier for you when you try to do that essentially you're talking about metabolic flexibility yep which Absolutely. is definitely a hot topic right now mm -hmm. now in this episode i've talked a bit about cholesterol markers which some of them can be incredibly valuable and that is why i believe that it's very important that you know your baseline numbers and a great way to do this is with insight tracker they can provide you with a fantastic profile of not only cholesterol, but other inflammatory markers that may be of importance to you personally. They will give you a personalized plan to reduce stress, improve sleep, optimize your health for the long haul. And this has been created by many leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics. Insight Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you need to improve upon. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance. And of course, they have a component to their blood work called Inner Age 2.0. So feel free to check that out. Now, for a limited time only, you'll get 20% off the entire Insight Tracker store. Just go to insighttracker.com forward slash Dr. Lyon. And now back to our show. Um, in terms of supplementation with a ketogenic diet, do you recommend supplementation? Have you seen evidence? I know that you're very evidence-based, of course, evidence-based with the interface of practical application. Yep, absolutely. So there's some interesting um, observations in ketogenic diet that basically mineral balance shifts mm -hmm. when you're not eating a lot of carbohydrates. So you tend to actually like shed more minerals through urine. Um, so Is that the keto flu? That definitely contributes to the keto okay. flu for sure. Um, so making sure that you're supplementing things like magnesium specifically um, can help to make sure that balance is in check. Um, and is there a kind of magnesium, a form? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I personally like L3 innate just because it seems to be the most bioavailable and it's also the only form that can cross the blood brain barrier. Yep. Um, so by taking L3 and A, you can essentially make sure that the tissues or your, all the tissues of your body are receiving that magnesium. Yeah, so I, I would recommend that one. There's there's multiple organic forms, which yep. basically means it's conjugated to something like an amino acid um, or another carbon-based molecule that allows it to be taken up very easily and used. Right. Yeah. Um, anything else? Uh, so you believe in supplementing with that magnesium? Mm -hmm and minerals, other minerals? Mm -hmm. uh, so I wouldn't take calcium. Uh, if okay. you were gonna focus on calcium, I would first make sure your vitamin D status is yeah. um, in check because that's the major calcium regulator of the body. So best to avoid supplementing calcium directly because you know over time elevated serum calcium can cause a whole bunch of issues um, right. like calcification of the arteries and like atherosclerosis, but um, making sure vitamin D levels are good. Uh, vitamin K2 is super important mm -hmm. though. If you're eating a high fat diet, you are more likely to get adequate levels of K2. Um, supplementation doesn't hurt. Um, 
that will basically help the calcium in the blood get into the bones and the teeth where it needs to be. Right. Um, MCTs can be used to kind of help accelerate the ketogenesis mm -hmm. process and get your ketone levels up higher. You can use things like a ke you can buy ketone meters to see yeah. and like check if you're curious about where your levels are. Um, I personally liked to use um, a ketone meter and a glucose meter when I was on the ketogenic diet just to like correlate how I was feeling to the numbers so that I could kind of understand my body better. Um, and I think it's pretty interesting in general to use like a continuous glucose monitor or the finger prick mm -hmm. um, just to kind of get a sense for how your body's responding to certain foods, the impact of like having poor sleep or the impact of exercise or not exercising um, can be super helpful. Yeah. One thing that I think is really important is we discuss diet, obviously, but just right now it seems as if diet is a four-letter swear word, Well, but it is a four-letter word and it just seems to be incredibly controversial, very heated. What's so interesting is there seems to be almost a repeat of history. There are things that continue on over the years, for example, the ketogenic diet and that diet, which we mentioned earlier, has been around in the early 1900s, maybe a little bit later, really as a modality to treat for seizures, mm -hmm. which is fascinating. So here we are using a nutritional therapy to change biology for a specific outcome, specifically seizures in children, which mm -hmm. is huge. Um, and now we're seeing various renditions of the ketogenic diet. Can you run us through the typical four to one ketogenic diet, the Atkins, the kind of the spinoff of the carnivore, and maybe there's one or two more? Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, so I think it's important maybe to note that there's like kind of a connotation now about diet being something that's restrictive, which mm. is interesting. Like it almost has a negative um, spin on it right. in today's culture. Um, but diet is really just what you consume on a day-to-day -day basis. It doesn't have to be cutting out an entire food group, for example. But in the context of ketogenic diet, so um, basically the idea is to have a high fat consumption, which will drive fat burning in the liver. Mm. And the spillover from that process creates ketone bodies, which the major ones are 3-hydroxybutyrate, acetoacetate, and then there's a third acetone, but it's in much smaller amounts. 3-hydroxybutyrate um, is the major ketone body that's going to be going throughout the tissues of the body and providing a, a, a substrate for energy production. Mm -hmm. um, so the different types of ketogenic diets are essentially just variations on protein and then also about like how restrictive the carbs actually are. Mm. But ultimately, if you get too much of an insulin spike from a meal, that will naturally suppress ketogenesis. So your ketone levels drop in the blood. So ultimately, the goal of a ketogenic diet is to try to mitigate insulin response okay. to keep ketone levels kind of cruising along and, and is there a certain uh, from a clinical perspective people can measure their ketones mm -hmm. right um and do people typically do it urinary ketones is it is there like a continuous glucose monitor yet for ketones not yet that's a that's a really great point though i'm sure there's one that's up and coming <laughs> yeah. uh, a lot of people do use urine test strips however they're not necessarily accurate after a certain period of time um, as you become keto adapted your kidneys actually adapt to basically release less ketones into the urine because it, they're saving, hmm. they're basically saving those ketones to be used by the tissues. Um, so you could kind of see a drop in urinary ketone levels, but maybe your blood levels are actually like consistent. Okay. Um, so the blood levels are definitely the most accurate. Uh, and there is like a, like a fingertip 
prick meter um, that you can use to like. Did check you ever blood. use that? I did. Yeah. And what? Um, was it cumbersome or was it pretty no. easy to do? No, I mean, it's not super comfortable to have to prick your fingers <laughs> like pretty frequently. But if you're just doing it, you know, maybe once or twice a day for a week at a time just to see, you know, what how different foods mm. are affecting you. It's pretty manageable, I would say. And then is there a number that if an individual were to check what that would be? Yeah. So, I mean, people can generally consider that they'll be in ketosis if they're around like 0.8 to 1 millimolar. Okay. Um, and then higher than that is fine, but generally that wouldn't be considered ketosis if you're below those those numbers. Um, and a lot of people actually will find that they struggle to get there, mm. especially in the beginning. Um, why is that? A couple reasons. So the body is, first of all, maybe not uh, utilized those pathways very frequently in the past. So it could just be an adaptation process, like those enzymes need to be upregulated and the body's kind of adapting to burning more fat. And is that typically, you know, for a protein, uh, more protein focused diet it takes about two weeks is that the same for a ketogenic diet i believe a ketogenic diet takes longer right um, a- yeah it depends so if you do a fast and you're exercising okay. also you can really get into ketosis pretty quickly like let's say you do maybe like a one to two hour endurance session um and then you're also carbohydrate restricting that day you know you could burn through your liver glycogen pretty quickly in that context you could probably get it out within within a day mm. Um, and then as long as the liver glycogen levels remain depleted, then the ketones will start to be produced. Um, and a major roadblock for people, I would say, is just understanding where they're getting carbohydrates in their diet. Great. Let's talk <laughs> about it. Yeah, because um, even certain foods that may be considered low carb, like something like zucchini or eggplant, for certain people, when they eat them, they do get a pretty strong glycemic response. Mm. Um, it's not exactly it's entirely clear why that might be. So um, what you're saying is it's different for different people. So you totally. might eat a zucchini. I would never eat a zucchini, but if I did, you're saying that my insulin response would be different to the same amount. Mm-hmm. Totally. And, and that's interesting because it's biochemical variability. Yes, absolutely. And we don't know why that would be. Not entirely. So it mm. could be, it could relate to um, like food sensitivities. People who eat a food that they're sensitive to tend to have a glycemic response that's related to like the immune response that could happen from that. Um, but then also just rates of digestion as well, like previous meals that day, um, if you're coming into it fasted or fed. That's actually a really important point. And I, and I think that that isn't necessarily differentiated in the literature either, mm-hmm. is that sometimes when we look at a dietary pattern or a individual with a certain diet, it one really needs to address the overall 24-hour food intake, what they've been doing. Um, You know, you and I have worked on some projects about myokines, Mm -hmm. and we know that depending on if your glycogen level is low, you may, for example, um, produce more interleukin-6. Right. And there are just variabilities within whether an individual is, like you mentioned, fed or fasted, what exactly is their nutrition, how full are their muscles, those kinds of things. Yep, absolutely. And that's that's really like a, a struggle on the research side of things. And then, you know, as a consumer of the research, trying to dis, like um, detangle basically those yeah. results to try to find a way to implement that into your life. But the best thing is to just really try different things and see what works for you. That's why it's a perk to definitely use like the glucose or ketone meters. And you a continuous see- glucose monitor would yep. be phenomenal with yep. that. Absolutely. Um, so you could see your personal response to different foods and yeah. sequencing of meals and 
things like this. And so back to defining, you were talking about carbohydrates and people, one barrier to entry to getting into ketosis. So I have tried the ketogenic diet. I have actually never been able to get into ketosis. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Um, I thought I was doing it right. It's, yeah. you know, I, I tried it in medical school uh, and, you know, I wasn't able to do it. But again, I certainly wasn't checking blood ketones. I was using urine strips. Mm -hmm. um, and I will tell you, I never lost weight. Hmm. Uh, I actually tried it again in residency too. Um, it didn't work for me. Was your goal weight loss? Yeah, I think it was hunger management and weight. Yeah, okay. weight loss. I Did you to feel try. like you were more satisfied, like satiated? No, 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 not at all. Hmm. Interesting. Were yeah. you eating enough fat? How much fat? Probably were you way too much. Because a lot of people don't eat enough fat. Like they think that they are eating enough, but then really, like they're under consuming fat. And yeah. if they're eating more, then they can get like the energy. Boost I was trying fat bombs. Mm -hmm. um, the only thing that happened to me is I felt really soft. Hmm. And, and maybe I didn't give it enough, enough time. And again, this isn't, I'm not looking at hard endpoints. Yeah. It was in the middle of residency. It was, you know, that in and of itself is somewhat of a disaster. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I never was able to get into ketosis. Interesting. Yeah. I, I definitely was able to get into ketosis. I wasn't it wasn't something I wanted to stay on long term though because I definitely felt it affecting my um, resistance training performance negatively without I, the glycogen stores available. I, I did. I felt yeah, the same way. Exactly. So um, it's not for everybody for sure. Yes, and perhaps long term there's an increase in stress markers like uh, reverse T3 and you there can be hormonal changes. But again, it's always in the dose of how often mm -hmm. and maybe a ketogenic diet works great for some people. Right, and it, again, it doesn't have to be something that you're always on. Like I think ideally a cyclic ketogenic diet would be the best bet mm -hmm. to avoid the, the negatives and the drawbacks of the diet while yeah. still getting the benefits. You could incorporate a high carb meal like once or twice a week. And then ultimately you could avoid the effects, negative effects on thyroid, mm -hmm. uh, potentially negative effects on like beta cell function in the pancreas. If and oh, we should also talk about that. Yeah. I'm going to make that <laughs> that note because um, there is a beta cell function change that happens with individuals who go on a lower carbohydrate diet. Mm -hmm. uh, you know what? Maybe we should just jump right in. So basically, right now we are talking about a ketogenic diet. We mentioned the very high fat ketogenic diet, which is traditionally four to one, mostly 90% fat. There are different renditions of the ketogenic diet. Uh, individuals would say that there could be a carnivore-esque diet, which is, could it be high protein? Maybe it's 50% protein, maybe it's 50% fat, who knows? I'm not sure that it's clearly defined, which in, in fact, in the literature, I believe there's only been one study mm -hmm. um, on the carnivore diet. And then of course the Atkins diet, which is uh, what, 18% or so protein, the rest is fat and a small yep. amount of carbohydrates. Yep. So the next question would be, what happens? Let's talk about metabolic endpoints, physiological happenings in the short term of a ketogenic diet. I lose that. I use that word loosely. Um, short term, short term changes. So obviously, you had just mentioned that we switch to a ketone mm -hmm. for energy. Uh, what else? Yep. So most of the tissues in the body can then begin burning the ketones that we're now creating in our liver. Um, our muscles might be becoming glycogen depleted, assuming that we're still active while we're adapting to the diet. We're not really having much uh, glucose that's going to be shunted there to fill the glycogen levels back up. Liver glycogen will be completely depleted 
um, if you're in optimal ketosis, essentially, if those liver glycogen levels come back up, that will suppress ketosis as well. So if liver glycogen is depleted for people that are thinking about maintaining blood sugar, mm -hmm. blood glucose levels, how how is the body keeping that really tight level of whatever it is, five millimoles of glucose in the bloodstream mm -hmm. at any time. Yeah, so um, usually when you're, when you're in ketosis, you're burning fat, and this fat is in the form of triglycerides mm -hmm. that are either from food or from stored in the adipose tissue. And when you burn triglycerides, you break them into fatty acids and glycerol backbone. So they're using the glycerol backbone. Yep, that glycerol backbone serves as about 50% of uh, the circulating, like from gluconeogenesis mm -hmm. of the circulating glucose. The rest could be a combination of amino acids um, and then like some lactate glucose cycling that happens. Got it. Yeah. So people, individuals who are on a ketogenic diet, despite depletion of liver glycogen, are able to maintain solid blood sugar levels. Yep. Some people will see like a, over time, you'll see a, like a small reduction in circulating glucose levels. Okay. Um, you know, but it's not anything too significant, maybe just to like four and a half millimolar or something like that. Okay. And yeah. what happens to some of the blood parameters that individuals typically look at, say with their doctor, like insulin. Mm -hmm. So fasting insulin can go down over time. Um, and generally, you know, people might think that that's a good thing. Um, but I think it's important to consider why it's going down. And something that's been coming up clinically for many people is that after they've been on a carnivore or keto diet for an extended period of time, maybe a year or more, um, when they try to reintroduce carbs, they get these crazy blood sugar spikes mm. that then they're taking a long time to clear that glucose, which indicates that insulin isn't either, either isn't responding to the glucose stimulus and it's not being released or that glucose isn't able to get into the muscle and other insulin sensitive mm. tissues. So it's either basically an insulin resistance phenotype or a hypoinsulinemia. So insulin's not being produced. And it seems like it, the research is kind of still emerging in this area. So one hypothesis is that over time, when you're not engaging beta cells, so you're restricting carbohydrates, you're not and making beta insulin. beta cells are? The, the cells that make insulin in right. the pancreas. Um, when you're not engaging them over long periods of time, they could mm. begin to either shift to alpha cells, which make glucagon, another important hormone in, yeah. in blood How, sugar regulation. So if blood sugar is low, the alpha cells uh, release glucagon mm -hmm. to help uh, promote gluconeogenesis. Yep. Yeah, so the beta cells could e either mm. be switching identities to another type of cell, or they could actually be going undergoing apoptosis, which is like a, a structured cell death that that cells undergo in right. kind of a programmed way. Which is way. unusual if you think yeah. about it. How would that happen in nature, right? It it that just seems unusual mm -hmm. that the beta cells of the pancreas would either one morph into uh, or take on different characteristics like an alpha cell or go through apoptosis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, in nature, you most likely wouldn't be go undergoing carbohydrate restriction strictly for mm. a year, more period of time. And it's like, because we've integrated this kind of dogma into diet where people think they can't eat carbs, they're bad. Yeah. It's like you're not engaging in the natural rhythms that you would have experienced in like the evolutionary environment where you're kind of eating what you can, when you can. So we're influencing just through mental fortitude changing what would be perhaps a natural approach to mm -hmm. cyclical feeding. Yep, absolutely. That's really interesting. 
Um, in terms of blood sugar regulation, just uh, glucose levels in a ketogenic diet, does that, how, you know, if one individual were to measure that, would you say they're high, they're low? Is it just regulated? So it, it should be on, it should be about average, maybe between 80 and 90. Okay. Um, some people could experience levels a little bit lower than that. And that's mm. not a bad thing necessarily. That could be a good thing, um, depending on the context for that specific individual. Um, it, on, conversely, though, for the carnivore diet, there have been cases where people basically have an elevated fasting blood glucose. Mm. And this seems to be an overproduction of glucagon because their glucagon levels also go up. Mm. It's not entirely clear what exactly is going on because the research is still really new in carnivore and there's not a lot um, How that's published. Think, what, one study? Maybe? Yeah, there's there's one study that was basically um, survey-based um, out of Harvard, I think, earlier this year or the end of last mm. year um, that kind of just questioned whether people felt like they could adhere to the diet, what benefits they got, if there were any negative side effects. Oh, interesting. So it was yeah. a survey. Uh, I think you actually gave it to me. I have it here. Yeah. So this is... Um, out of uh, David Lug Ludwig's lab, okay, or he was one of the uh, authors here. Yeah, so this was out of Harvard. Um, interesting. And what was the, see what the results were. So yes, it was a, about a 2,000 response. Mm -hmm. And um, the people basically yeah. were supposed to be on the diet for more than six months. And then they surveyed them over the course of, I think, uh, a few weeks, maybe two yeah. months. And then we're basically trying to determine you know, how many adverse effects there were, if people were generally happy on the diet, if they experienced any health benefits from the diet. And most people in general felt very, um, like, po like they had a positive experience during that period of time, which I think is um, encouraging for probably research in the space. Now people will be more interested and engaged in trying to, you know, continue studies on the topic of carnivore diet. And now we can hopefully get some more mechanistic and like studies that, that yeah. will show us what's going on at like a metabolic level. I mean, there's probably something really beneficial in these, you know, I, I believe that there is. I believe that utilized in a cyclical nature, there's probably some really good benefit to a carnivore diet. Mm -hmm. And there is bio-individuality. And same with a vegan diet. But, you know, um, I think where things get really confusing is, number one, these things are not in absolutes. This is the first study on a carnivore diet. And it's not, I mean, it's not essentially a study. Mm -hmm. There is no intervention. It is survey data, um, which is wonderful in the way that it's the beginning of a proof of a concept. Um, but it is not proving anything, nor is it intervention. Correct. Important to note. Now, you actually were going to do your postdoc at Harvard. I was, yeah. <laughs> I committed uh, to them. It was the uh, the the integrative medicine department. Okay. Uh, yeah, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm just curious why you didn't go there. What happened? What was your experience? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I mean, I was having issues at home, like my mother's health yeah. was declining. But then, in addition to that, I kind of got some um, maybe uncomfortable vibes from a from a talk that I went to that was that was um, being given by a vegan professor that was in the department or affiliated with the department at least he was talking about a study that um, he and his colleagues had conducted that was comparing a vegan diet with a mediterranean diet for different health outcomes and they yeah. looked at things like ldl cholesterol so i went to this talk and they were comparing the effects of a study it was an interventional study where they basically had two cohorts of people one cohort was on a vegan diet a low-fat vegan diet the other cohort was on a mediterranean diet 
and each cohort was on the diet for eight weeks and then they crossed them over, which means that they each basically switched onto the other diet after eight weeks and then they were on the other diet for another eight weeks. So it was a total of 16 week study. And they looked at the effects on LDL cholesterol, um, body weight, uh, BMI, and, mm-hmm. and I think blood pressure as well. And my experience at the talk was, during the talk I was asking questions because the the speaker was really emphasizing the like how great the vegan diet was for weight loss and for the especially for like LDL cholesterol and like weight loss and then I wanted to know how much of that weight was coming from lean mass because over the short term a vegan diet is going to be highly protein restrictive especially right. for those who aren't familiar with how to like formulate a, a sustainable vegan diet right and nobody would answer my question and I felt kind of disheartened by that and it almost... But that's unusual yeah. to ask, you know, um, you and I have both been in academic environments and typically when a speaker presents something, there is an open discussion mm-hmm. and it's really important to be able to say, hey, you know, this is the question, these are the reasons why we did or did not measure it. Mm-hmm. But to actually be dismissed is pretty unusual. And I don't experience you having incredible biases mm-hmm. with nutrition. And again, we just had Tracy Anthony on and I don't really, regardless of where her lab was, you know, she actually started with Don Lehman and is now looking at protein restriction. I think that a scientist, um, part of the role and the job description is to find truth. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you mentioned earlier that hum- that scientists are humans. Yes. And that's true. Uh, at least last time I checked. Mm -hmm. I don't really know anyone from any other um, universes yet, but there comes with that, even the scientists have their own biases. So so you you were saying, I I kind of went down a little bit of a a rabbit hole, but you did go, you went to Harvard, you went to go listen to this talk in which this individual is presenting data. Mm -hmm. And the next logical thought processes especially when it comes to a vegan diet, is the fact that it is very protein restricted. And right. we do know that if not, if an individual is not young, highly active, or doing something to counterbalance that natural loss of skeletal muscle, then, and lean mass is everything. It is Correct. not just skeletal muscle, it is bone, it is organ, it is liver, it is tissues. Mm-hmm. Um, so there wasn't an answer, and it doesn't sound like you were even addressed. Yeah, I mean, I will say it was during COVID, so it was online. Um, <laughs> but there weren't... Any- okay, that kind of changes it, but <laughs> There still. were barely any other questions. Like, I had two questions in a row. Nobody answered them. And, yeah. like, nobody else was really asking questions. So I felt like they were just purposefully not mm-hmm. being answered. And then also the, the speaker is a notable vegan doctor. So I feel like there's somewhat of a conflict of interest there already. Like, he's apparently he's been doing this for a long time, too. Yeah. Um, so that also motivated him to do the study, which isn't inherently bad, but it might introduce bias, like you mentioned, into yeah. the way that the data is processed or to e- into even like what you're choosing to measure to begin with. Can we talk about that? Do you yeah. remember what some of these measurements were? I, I can. Um, yeah, they looked at blood pressure. They saw a decrease in blood pressure. Um, they looked at LDL cholesterol. They saw a decrease in that. I, I want to stop you. LDL cholesterol. Yeah. mic drop like there should be like sounds of pins dropping do you think that that's a good marker so i think it's a very like poor man's marker for yeah. lipid health right. um 
essentially what you're do what you're trying to proxy by measuring LDL cholesterol is actually LDL particle. Mm -hmm. And then LDL particle is even a proxy for ApoB because ApoB particles are really what's associated with atherosclerosis right. and the development of cardiovascular disease. Um, but even beyond that, uh, we kind of understand at this point that, you know, cholesterol and even ApoB maybe to a certain extent aren't causing cardiovascular disease and right. atherosclerosis, but maybe, you know, they're like firefighters out of fire and the fire being inflammation. So this like systemic underlying inflammation that's kind of festering for years mm -hmm. over time, damaging the vascular system, uh, the blood vessels. And then, you know, ultimately these are like micro injuries that need to be repaired. And as, as any tissue repairs, like if you get a cut on your arm and you form a scar, the scar tissue is less um, flexible and it has, you know, it's different from the surrounding tissue right. in the same way when your vasculature is healing, you're basically getting almost like a scar tissue that's hardening. It's not as flexible. And over time that can cause heart disease. So would you, again, this is Harvard, uh, would you have measured LDLC? No, no. I would have looked at ApoB and then I also maybe would have looked at something like CRP to something to measure like right. inf the inflammatory status of the body or OxLDL. And oxidized LDL. Yeah. But we do know that when individuals make a sudden change of their diet, um, oftentimes there is a drop in cholesterol, mm -hmm. which then re-equilibrates. Yep. But there is an initial drop. And that doesn't mean it's clinically significant. Right. And it's also worth mentioning that yeah. it's they don't like tell you about the demographics of the people who are joining the study, but it's a pretty safe bet that most people are transitioning from a Western diet, yeah. standard American diet, to a Mediterranean or vegan diet, which obviously is going to be a benefit. Right. So you're not really seeing signal from the diets themselves in that case. It's more so from the absence of the processed foods and the fast food and stuff right. like this. And there was also a loss of lean body mass, mm -hmm. which I don't really see reported. It doesn't seem like that was mentioned. They didn't emphasize it. Yeah. They and it was actually pretty significant. Yep. So half the weight that was lost was lean body mass. Yep. In the vegan arm. Yeah. Yep. Um, but then again, it was regained mm -hmm. after protein was added back in. Yep. So when they switched back to the Mediterranean arm yeah. of the study, they regained the lean mass. Um, so it seemed like the Mediterranean diet was was pretty muscle or like lean mass yeah. sparing in that in that sense. Which is interesting, right? And we don't know if it was skeletal muscle or right. if it was, you know, liver or any of these other things. Right. Um, so these are very interesting things that weren't necessarily highlighted. And I think that um, perhaps you would agree is that there is a quickness of society to trust something that is published. Mm -hmm. And one of the other aspects to that is perhaps taking a deeper look into what is the reason behind it? Right. Is this actually beneficial? Is it saying that it's measuring what it's saying. I love that there was an attempt to do a randomized mm -hmm. clinical trial. I think it's fantastic that it was a crossover trial. I think that it is unfortunate that the markers, which uh, typically we all agree upon, that are more clinically relevant were not used. Correct. As opposed to a marker that we know changes pretty quickly with a change in diet. Mm -hmm. um, and then after a, I don't know, six week period, we'll go back uh, to the baseline levels. 
Yeah, it, it seems like a bit of a missed opportunity in yeah, that aspect. I think that you have said it very well. I think it seems like a bit of a missed opportunity. Um, anything, any other thoughts on this? Um, just kind of a meta thought in, in that, you know, research can be helpful to help us understand the effects of different diets at a, popu- at a population level. Yeah. But for an individual to decide what diet's best for them, it's really just, the best option is to really just try things and see how you yeah. feel. One of the things you've been really interested in over the last couple of years is the microbiome. And why? Uh, it's a really emerging area of science hmm. um, in, in the realm of human health. And well, what is, first of all, what is the gut microbiome? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a microbiome on the skin and in, in the, the brain gut, everywhere, and, right? Yeah. And now it's emerging that there's microbiomes everywhere. And basically, the mi- a microbiome is a community of different fungi, viruses and bacteria that kind of form an ecosystem that is a is a, a part of us, even though we can't see it. it. It serves integral functions to the human body. That is insanity. Yeah. And so that's all I'm going to say about that. Yeah. I don't. I mean, just the idea that there is a group of fungi and viruses and all kinds of this weird ecosystem of bac- not even just bacteria. Who knows what it mm-hmm. is? Our ability to measure it is. Is it good? Um, it's not great because certain microbes can only survive under very specific hmm. conditions that can't be recapitulated in a dish or hmm. in a lab. So we are only really getting a sample of the population when we're doing a, like a fecal sample or a skin sample or wherever we're, we're taking a microbiome sample from. One kind of scary implication is that, you know, for years, decades, we've been using different pesticides and fungicides and all of these chemicals in our environments thinking that it's not going to harm us. We aren't bacteria. We are fungi. Hmm. But there's more cells, more bacterial cells in our gut than than stars in the observable universe. Okay. And yeah, so it's in like the hundreds of trillions. Hmm. And, you know, by harming them, we are harming ourselves. And, you know, I talked about earlier how I was put on antibiotics when I was really young and how that affected the rest of my life and how there's emerging research showing that antibiotic use can contribute largely to obesity later in life. Mm. Um, So, you know, by considering these microbes as other and not part of ourselves, we're kind of having to go down this whole other route of learning about the body and and kind of under a new lens. That's interesting. Um, How did you even get interested in that? I mean, was it really from this idea that you used antibiotics when you were you know six or seven or was there something else that happened that you got interested in gut health so i had really bad ulcerative colitis when i was in my mid-20s i did not know that yeah okay yeah it was it was really bad um Mm. probably for about two three years Uh, i ended up doing an elimination diet at one point to try to figure out uh, if there were Mm. dietary triggers and i found that dairy was a major trigger for me and so i eliminated dairy strictly for like three years um and you know ultimately ended up becoming basically symptom free. Hmm. But also during that time, I had been discovering more about the microbiome, learning about how to cure food allergies and insensitivities, how to heal the gut. Um, Because clearly, you know, something like IBS or ulcerative colitis, you're having a lot of inflammation in the gut. There's a lot of mucus production, there's bleeding. So it's a matter of trying to understand what the gut needs to heal itself. Mm -hmm. And then obviously removing triggers is a part of that but then also providing beneficial things as well. And I came across Joel Green's work and the Immunity Code, which uh, is a book he released a couple years ago. 
And there's a gut protocol outlined in there, which is comprised of like three very simple ingredients. It's basically an apple peel powder, a red fruit powder, and something called human milk oligosaccharides. And I'll basically like unpack what each of those does. And the first question everyone is wondering, maybe not everybody, but some people are going to wonder and say, there's a lot of talk in the gut space, right? Mm-hmm. So as a physician, we use ICD-10 codes and leaky gut, and the, the terms that are very common are not necessarily diagnostic. Mm-hmm. And one of the other things that we think about is we hear a lot about food sensitivities, and is that very, you know, is that even considered real? Is there evidence behind it? Mm-hmm. Also, um, the protocol that Joel Green created, it, have you found it to be evidence-based or is this an interface of evidence and clinical experience, which is also very relevant? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so his actually all of his protocols are rooted in primary literature. Okay. And then he used those in clinical population, like in clinical settings and found major benefits mm-hmm. and then kind of conveyed that to a general population in the book. Um, I think it's super important to think about, you know, whether things hold up and under a clinical lens. Um, but there's also things like, you know, people eat a certain food and they feel terrible after they eat it. Like they're I, not, I would agree. Yeah. And I don't think that we know all the answers. I do think yeah. that um, there's an aspect of evidence-based medicine, which is incredible and really uh, should serve as a foundation and as a guiding post. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as a, a person who sees clinical, sees patients in a clinical setting, there's absolutely something to be said for uh, an interface of the non-hard science and the personal experience. Absolutely, the empirical yeah. research with the yeah. published research, yeah. I'd agree with that. Yeah, and um, so. So you said apple peel, yep. a red powder. Yep. Um, and, and human milk oligosaccharides. Human milk oligosaccharides, algo- we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll try again So on we, that. we'll call them HMOs <laughs> and. Yes, each everyone of, knows what that is. Each of these ingredients contain um, prebiotics. So prebiotics are molecules that we ingest Mm -hmm. that we can't break down with our digestive processes, but they basically reach to the colon and can feed microbes that live there. Um, And so that's just like the general broad term for a prebiotic, whereas a probiotic is something that is basically a live organism that's living somewhere on you or in you and that uh, is basically promoting health. And then there's something also called a postbiotic, which I, I'll just touch briefly. I've never kind even of up heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. So a postbiotic is either a molecule that is extracted from a bacteria that would live, for example, in our gut. Um, and then you can consume mm. that to get some sort of benefit. Or it's like a dead, inactivated bacteria that you're consuming to get some sort of benefit. Um, so those are kind of like the three broad categories. But with a focus on prebiotics. So apple peel powder contains a very specific um, type of anthocyanin, which is a polyphenol molecule, which is is an antioxidant. It gives it its color. Gives it that color. And anthocyanin can be purple. Typically people think about the purple anthocyanins and that would be... Like red cabbage and blueberries, blackberries, foods like this. So any like bright colored fruits or vegetables actually... Mm -hmm. They're made bright and pigmented by the antioxidant right. polyphenols that are present in them. Um, but in addition to serving as antioxidants, they're also very potent prebiotics. So they travel to the gut and feed very beneficial microbes mm-hmm. known as bifidobacteria. Bifidobacteria, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a way to measure these kinds of bacteria in a clinical setting? So there are stool tests. Yes. Um, you can 
certainly see relative changes. Like let's say you take a baseline test and then you change, have a dietary change and then you take another test. You can see like relative increases yeah. or decreases. However, there wouldn't be one set like absolute level that you like that anybody would want to achieve. It's very personalized in that way. That's interesting. Yeah. Because on the stool test, and we do actually use them in clinic, I always question, you know, I always try to take the relevance with a grain of salt. I mean, mm -hmm. there's certainly pathology testing, which I do a lot of is, is certainly because many of my population in terms of my patients travel throughout the entire world. They come back with all kinds of very interesting additions to their uh, gastrointestinal tract, which may or may not be fun. Uh, and there are ways in which one can test that. In addition, I do do tests that may be a little bit more on the fringe of what a typical clinical practice would be. And we do look at aspects of um, acromantia, which I know mm -hmm. that you're gonna talk about in bifidobacterium. And I always wonder um, what, in terms of the numbers, is that actually relevant? If something is high versus low, uh, certainly probably low is an issue, but there's probably individuality for all of them. Totally. There's definitely individuality, and that's yeah. why it's really important to kind of establish a baseline if possible. Um, then you can kind of know re relative to yourself. Have you done these tests yet? I have not yet, mm -hmm. though I'm supposed to actually test them with Josh as, okay. as part of a project that we're working on. And then and Josh Anthony. Yep. Josh Anthony. Yep. So Tracy's jo husband. Josh Anthony is also a really uh, profound uh, researcher. He's mm -hmm. amazing. And he's now in the private sector. Yep. He runs a personalized nutrition yeah. like... Uh, kind of like an umbrella company that's working with other nutrition companies to help them launch great products. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Um, so you were saying, so uh, human milk oligosaccharides, mm -hmm. which I butchered that name, mm -hmm. HMO, apple peel, mm -hmm. which I, is interesting. Could someone just eat enough apple peel to make an impact? Could they yeah. peel yeah. apples and then... So the original protocol was actually for like fresh apple peels. Okay. Um, now that the book has become more popular, the protocols have become more popular, companies have been releasing apple peel powder because it's easier for people, first of all, to, to do that than to like have to peel the apples themselves. Mm -hmm. And then obviously the waste of like the rest of the apple. If you I don't would eat the eat whole it. apple. Yeah. I think that there's probably benefit to pectin, but maybe not there, in this There scope. is, but yeah. you have to eat like six. Bring like, it. Eat, like the six peels. I got it. Bring <laughs> it. Um, I think that's interesting how he came up with these dosing. You know, the dosing uh -huh. is interesting. Um, so yes, and you started implementing this and mm -hmm. you found oh, yeah. that so it actually changed. Before I, before I say that, let me just describe what HMOs are because they're super interesting and people might not have heard of them yet. Um, so human milk oligosaccharides are prebiotics that were mm -hmm. first discovered in human breast milk. And there's over 200 of them currently like identified. Okay. And essentially their role is to feed bifidobacteria in the infant gut. Hmm. And essentially, the baby's born, uh, it gets some seeding like through the birth process of the microbiome, but the microbiome really gets established once these prebiotics, these HMOs, get introduced into the gut. Um, and they're very good at feeding bifidobacteria specifically. And why so, does anyone care about bifidobacteria? Yeah, so bifidobacteria are super important for maintaining microbiome diversity hmm. and health overall. Bifidobacteria make two important molecules. One is lactate and one is acetate. And so mm. these are both organic acids, um, which isn't important other than just to to be more specific. And the acetate is also considered a short-chain fatty acid. Okay. And there are three major short-chain fatty acids uh, that are present in the gut, and that's butyrate, 
acetate and propionate. And these feed the enterocytes? So yeah, butyrate specifically feeds the enterocytes. Mm -hmm. So bifidobacteria doesn't make butyrate directly, but what it does is it makes acetate and lactate, which then go on to feed the butyrogenic bacteria, so the bacteria that make butyrate. Mm. And so by supporting their growth, there's ample butyrate that's produced, and then those can be taken up by, by the colonocytes, the colon cells, um, and serve as the major energy source for those cells. And that's really important because it helps maintain gut integrity yep. or even colon integrity. Yep, which, absolutely. Uh, is important. Yep, super important because there's harmful molecules within the microbiome as well. So um, E. coli that's present basically in everybody's gut yeah. will express things like L LPS, which is uh, an endotoxin. And if the gut integrity is compromised, LPS from like dead E. coli or other bacteria can basically get through the gut barrier. And what it does is it basically triggers off an inflammatory response throughout the whole body because mm. LPS is um, lipophilic, which means it's attracted to fat. Right. It can get stuck in the fat molecule, create an inflamed environment there, which then attracts macrophages, which actually further potentiates the inflammation because they basically are there to kind of try to ameliorate things, almost like to heal an injury. So basically what you're saying is if an individual has some kind of impaired gastrointestinal, including the colon, mm -hmm. intestinal lining, then it can create a flux of highly immunogenic or just toxic, mm -hmm. I hate to use that word, but essentially toxic molecules, yes. which can create inflammation throughout the body and yep. probably difficult to identify. Yep. Um, if less someone was actually looking for it. So you, may yeah. see, you might see inflammatory markers go up. Maybe you see, right. would you see a SED rate go up mm -hmm. or uh, a CRP rate? Possible. You know? Yeah, it, it could be also highly variable from individual to yeah. individual. Um, I think you can measure LPS, mm. but like the, the amount that might be present to lead to inflammation in one person might be different from right. another person. Um, Which is really interesting because the reason I say this is because when we look at standard blood panels, mm -hmm. we do have a sense of what, even though it's, it's typically the average of a whole bunch of sick people or perhaps non-optimized people, we don't even know in terms of gut microbiome, what levels we're looking at, or mm -hmm. even LPS, I don't even, I mean, I don't measure that. Mm -hmm. And I, I would say that, you know, our average blood draw is outrageous in terms of the markers that we're testing. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah, and there's also important implications there with obesity because obesity is also linked to poor gut mm. integrity. And so like the association of leaky gut to unhealthy fat tissue, which People think of fat as a storage organ for triglycerides, for fat, and right. it is, but it's also more than that. It's also an endocrine organ. It is. And it's also governing whole body immune status to a certain extent because there's such a huge immune cell population present in adipose tissue. Right. Just to wrap up on the side of like inflamed fat being, you know, um, resistant to releasing fat, basically. So what does that mean? That means it's more difficult to... To lose fat. To lose fat because... Yeah. Because that inflammation basically will um, create a mm. hardened structure in the extracellular matrix around fat cells. But this is be above and beyond, say, dealing with calories. You're talking yep. about the actual physical matrix of mm -hmm. being able to mobilize yes. and utilize the triglycerides that are stored in yes. this kind of sick and inflamed adipose tissue. Correct. Hmm. I wonder that implication in terms of skeletal muscle. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. We'll have to write our next paper on that after the other one. 
that yeah, we're writing. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, the inflammation in the fat is going to equate also to inflammation in the muscle for sure. Mm. And there's also a huge component of like muscle influencing immune status as well. Yes. And a person with inflamed fat is most likely to have fat present in their muscle, which is probably making sick muscle in inactive. Mm -hmm. They're probably sedentary. So these things kind of spiral. But um, focusing on the gut is kind of an easy entry point for people because it's not asking too much from them. And it's also not acting, asking them to restrict anything. It's yeah. only asking you to add something in. And you seem very sensitive to that because mm -hmm. of your experience with how you felt around nutrition yep. and, and kind of developing first an unhealthy relationship to food because uh, it's just a, some, a, a little bit of a theme that I'm hearing that it's not restrictive. Mm -hmm. And totally. you do feel that there is really important practical application. I loved it. So we're kind of at the balance of acromencia and what's the other one? Bifido. Bifida. Bifido. Bifido. Bifido bacteria. Um, and, and the clinical applications above and beyond. So you said uh, HMO, apple peel, and what was the, the last one? The red fruit powder yep. full of anthocyanins. Yep. And are there other clinical applications and ways in which we can modulate and feed acromancia? Or was that is that pretty much the, the primary? So acromancia, uh, specifically of the three ingredients in the gut protocol, the apple peel powder is really great. Hmm. Uh, specifically, that pigment is really great at feeding acromancia. Um, also, grape extract is shown to improve acromancia levels. And would someone just take that as a tablet or? Yeah, they can take it as a supplement. Um, essentially, any sort of like dark fruits are going to be great for the microbiome in general. And you could just eat the dark fruit. Yep. Except it, it sounds as if how much would one person, is there a way to quantify how much dark fruit an individual would have to eat? Um, so it would really depend if you're all if you're already having like a clinical presentation of mm. gut distress you would have to play around with including different amounts. You could do a stool test to also see like your baseline acromancia and then okay. if you can get that increase if it corresponds to an improvement in your symptoms. Um, so you keep dosing it up. And arguably there probably be other things. Number one, you have to remove the pathogen if it's there mm -hmm. uh, and perhaps add in additional supplementation. Would you add in glutamine? Glutamine is really important for the, again, for those enterocytes. Yeah, so glutamine is is critical and this is actually something that would be interesting to touch on briefly is that um, the colon's energetic needs are very different from the small intestine mm -hmm. so the small intestine relies almost exclusively on amino acids to create energy whereas the colon relies primarily on butyrate right and so amino acids in the form of like animal foods for example are really supporting your upper gi tract um, whereas plant foods indigestible plant matter is is really focused on feeding your col your bacteria and your colon and then ultimately supporting your colon's health. Hmm. So that's where, you know, it really just makes sense from that level of analysis that, you know, as omnivores, we are supposed to be eating both types of foods to get optimal gut health. And hmm. then that translates to overall health as well. Um, in the absence of indigestible carbohydrates, so... Which would be indigestible carbohydrates? Like fibers. fibers. Yep, fibers, prebiotics. Does it matter uh, what kind of fiber? Uh matter in what context cellulose or soluble versus insoluble um so basically any fiber will support short chain fatty acid production Great. in the colon um the prebiotics are you know in general very good at especially hmos are really good mm -hmm. at supporting bifidobacteria which can then go on to really boost so you levels. take extra hmo right because you're not drinking breast milk 
Yes, exactly. I mean, it could be. That would totally be weird. I am definitely not drinking breast milk. I'm not going to mention if Shane tried, did, or did not try breast milk uh, for his HMO intake. I would just throw him under the bus there. No, he really didn't. Are you kidding? But, uh, yeah, that might be going to the black market breast milk. Or you could just consider getting a HMO powder. Yeah, and, and now there's like going to be more HMOs hmm. coming to the market soon that... You know, the current one that's popular is called called two-fucosal lactose. Mm. Um, but like I mentioned before, there's actually hundreds of these. And there's like a good five to ten new ones that are going to be in supplement form in the years to come. That's really interesting. It makes me wonder for those children, would there be any benefit for them to be on any kind of modified protocol? I'm not sure anyone can say uh, if they should or should not. But it, it would stand to reason that perhaps if it's good for adults that something of this nature would be really good for kids. Yeah, it's honestly, know? it's it's best to start young and like kids, yeah. kids like evolutionarily would have been breastfed for up to two years. Um, ouch, I would shoot myself. <laughs> and like those, so- No offense to all those breastfeeding mothers, <laughs> good job, amazing. Yeah, so I mean, those kids are getting exposed to HMOs for yeah. an extended period of time and that's really establishing, mm. um, it's establishing the microbiome for them for the rest of their life. And it's also allowing them to have a healthy immune system because virtually when you're creating the microbiome in an infant gut, you're establishing immunity because there's this dynamic interplay between self and other that the body is starting to establish now right. that it's emerged into the world. It needs to kind of um, understand what what should be um, attacked hmm. and what should be preserved. Right. And so that is all learned um, very early in life after birth thanks to the microbiome's interactions with um, the gut tissues themselves and the immune cells. So the production of butyrate and other molecules can influence the development of immunity. So interesting. Yeah. What part, so in terms of nutrition, I'm curious, I know everyone is gonna wanna know, what are you? What do you eat? Mm-hmm. So lately I've been very- Watermelon. <laughs> I do, I love my watermelon. Some cookies in the background. No, there were no cookies. You're right, you're right. I, <laughs> she I, keeps lying. <laughs> I'm, I'm lying, but you, you know. I have been very protein forward lately. Um, I tend to do better on a lower like starch, lower mm. sugar diet um, in general. I just feel much more energetic and um, just better overall. So I like to eat a lot of meat. Um, Is there any certain type? Yeah, so I got, I buy all my meats like locally mm. and like they're, they're sourced from like regenerative farms near me which I like to support the local economy and it's also better nutrition. That's very conscientious of you and yeah. also kind to yep. a lot of the local farmers, yeah. And it's also just way more delicious, actually. <laughs> uh, so it's mutually beneficial. So No, it's delicious because yeah. you know how to cook. Yes. If you were to sure. put that into the hands of anybody else who didn't know how to cook, questionable. <laughs> Fair enough. By the way, I will tell you, um, Alexis came over and I did air fry you a steak. You did. That it was thing, edible. Oh my gosh, it was literally like rubber. <laughs> But anyway, it wasn't that bad. No, it was terrible. Just being kind. Uh, so you were saying, so you you eat local regenerative agriculture. Yep. Um, Beef, chicken, sometimes pork. Um, I like to eat fresh vegetables. I have like a, a produce delivery box that I get. Amazing. Weekly from like other local farms, and it's just like whatever seasonal. So I, I like to do that. I like to incorporate some more fruit and like raw vegetables during the summer. I just tend to eat lighter during the summer. And no issues. Since you went on this protocol, you have not had an ulcerative colitis flare-up at all? No, not in years. And That's wild. And in addition to that, uh, so something that 
I didn't mention, but when I cut dairy out for years, um, I didn't get on the gut protocol right away because I didn't know it existed. Hmm. But I, you know, after eliminating it strictly for about two, three years, I reintroduced dairy and I actually had like quite a strong immune response. Okay. So like my throat was like swelling shut, not to the extent where I had to go to the hospital, but like it just mildly. And hmm. then I felt like basically like a hot sensation through my whole body. So like, which was in, like, it was telling me that there was an immune response, like hmm. somewhat of an allergy. So I was pretty scared to eat dairy for a while, even after that. So I, I think cut it out for another year and a half before I found the gut protocol, heard other people's experiences with them healing their food allergies by consuming this. And so I was on it for a good six months, tried reintroducing a small amount of dairy, was totally fine. Um, gradually just kept increasing it. And now I can literally eat anything. And I never now she have sits any in issues. the corner and eats cheese <laughs> by the block, <laughs> by the block, just pouring it in. <laughs> Yeah, um, but, but it's it, but it's great. And I also used to get like some bloating if I would eat beans or like raw vegetables. Mm -hmm. And now I can I can eat as much as I want of literally any food and I feel great. Amazing. So it's really like been transformational for me. Amazing. Um, well, people are going to obviously hear a lot more from you. Uh, you and I are collaborating on a few projects mm -hmm. and I'm sure people want to know where they can find you. So I'm on Instagram at Dr. Alexis Jasmine. It's like D-R and then Jasmine spelled J-A-Z-M-Y-N. And we'll, we'll uh, link everything for you. Yep. And then I also have a website. It's also DrAlexisJasmine.com. Um, I've been kind of dabbling in a few different areas. So I've been working recently with the company Layer Origin, who makes some of these gut health products, including the HMOs. Um, we've been collaborating on writing some pieces together, blog pieces, uh, creating content and trying to like expand reach. And so I'm their scientific content director now, which has been great. And I, I really appreciate their products. I've been using them for a while now. So it's been a good relationship. And I'm also working with some clients to help them optimize their gut health and other aspects of health, including fat loss and, you know, whatever other goals people might have. And yeah, I mean, obviously Amazing. we're collaborating a lot and I'm so excited for everything that we're building together. Yeah, It's gonna be great. Well, people, you guys have to give her a follow. And thank you so much. Thank you so much for spending your time and for really being so receptive and sharp and just together. You are amazing. Thank, thank you. you. Thank yeah. you. The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services including the giving of medical advice, and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast, YouTube, or materials linked from the podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and educational purposes only.